We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. It's a series that we're calling Believe. And believe is the message of this book. John wrote these words for us so that we might know, that we might have certainty that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then believing that, that we might have life in His name. And this morning we are going to consider John's testimony about the ministry of Jesus Christ in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And so I invite you, if you're able and willing, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 46 and read through the end of the chapter. Excuse me, verse 43. After the two days, he, meaning Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, The fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word. And the one who has ears to hear Let them hear it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are listening to your word. We come morning and evening to delight in the words that you have given to us, and especially this morning on this Lord's Day, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us faith to understand, to comprehend, and to delight in the wondrous truths of your word. We need it as much as we need our next breath and our next meal. So give to us. Holy Spirit, take from Jesus and give to us so that we might rejoice and delight in you. For the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. When I was a little kid... My mom used to teach us to memorize Scripture by uh, making songs for us to sing and learn. It was very effective. I still remember a lot of those songs that I learned uh, sitting around the table with my mom. And one of the, the passages of Scripture that she taught me to memorize 
That sticks with me to this day. It's James chapter 1, verse 2, and I can still give it to you word perfect in the New American Standard Version that we learned it in. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Those are heavy, those are heady and heavy truths for a little kid to think about. And, I, and to be honest, I, I think back to those days, and I remember struggling to understand what those words mean. How is it that you rejoice in trials? How do you count it joy when you struggle, when you suffer? And to be honest, I, this past summer I turned 37 years old. I've been pastoring for 11 years. And to be very honest, I think in many ways I'm still struggling to know what that means. Although the, the dimmer switch is, is moving in the right direction the longer I walk with Jesus. And what I've come to understand about that promise is that that command, it does come with a promise. It's a command to rejoice, but that command comes with a promise along with it that undergirds it and holds it up. And the promise is that God is at work in the midst of your trials to build in you a faith that can endure, a faith that will last. And that's really important for us to understand because in our frailty, we tend to be prisoners of the moment, don't we? We're so concerned and so consumed often with the here and now, but God is, God's concerned with eternity. We're enslaved to the moment, but He's the God, of, the God of space and time. And when we get our arms around the fact that God's doing something eternal in the midst of our trials, it begins to change our perspective. We begin to understand important things about the nature and the character of God. We begin to see that God is... is that life with God is, is far less like a toddler's restaurant placemat sketch. You know what I'm talking about? In the really nice restaurants where we take our kids, they'll give you a placemat and color it in. Life, is, life with God is less like that, and it's more like a master weaver's tapestry. And understand the difference. The, the placemat art is it's simple. It's, it's paint between the lines. It's easily seen and and understood and replicated, but the, the master weaver's tapestry is something very different. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a piece of art that's made with, with large quantities of different colored thread, and all of that thread goes into the front to create this masterpiece, but when you see the back of the tapestry, you just see kind of a big jumbled mess. And when we're living life in real time, all we see is the back of the tapestry. All we see are the jumbled knots and the fraying edges the seemingly disorganized colors that are smashed together. But at the same time, on the other side of that tapestry, there's something beautiful, something that's a piece of art, something that's worthy of admiration and awe. Corrie Ten Boom makes this point in the poem that she wrote, The Master Weaver's Plan. She writes, Oft times he, God, he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. In the midst of, of life that's beset with trials and suffering and hardship, all we see often is the back of the tapestry. But faith, the faith that God's building in us through our hardships, through our trials, faith helps us to rest in the promises of God and to believe that in the end we get to see the front of the tapestry. There's a day coming when faith will give way to sight and we'll be able to see 
in some way. We don't understand exactly how this works, but we'll get to see the front. We'll get to see the beautiful piece of art that God was making in the midst of that hardship. God builds that faith in us through our trials and through our suffering. And in the text that we're considering today, Jesus is going to do some things that don't make sense to us at first glance. From the backside of the tapestry, Jesus' behavior is very difficult to understand. But in this encounter with the royal official, Jesus is working in a purposeful and glorious and gracious way. Here's the big idea this morning. Here's what I want us to see. Jesus is working mysteriously and miraculously in our trials to awaken and strengthen faith. Jesus is working mysteriously and miraculously in our trials to awaken and strengthen faith. We're going to make our way through this narrative in three movements. First, I want us to look at verses 43 through 45 and see the surprising strategy that brings Jesus to this encounter with the official. Let me catch up to speed on what Jesus has been up to. At the end of chapter 2 and through chapter 3, Jesus is down in the area of Judea where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. He goes to the temple at the feast time. He's going into the temple and he's, he's driving out the money changers with a whip. He's causing a big stir. A little bit later, he's going out to the countryside and he's, he's baptizing, he's making disciples, he's gaining a following, he's making even more disciples than John the Baptist was. So he's having a lot of ministry success, but he's also kicking up a, a little bit of a holy ruckus. The Pharisees are taking note of what Jesus is doing, and they're beginning to oppose him. And Jesus knows that his time, his time's not yet come. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus leaves that region, and he goes to the region of Samaria, which is just north of Judea. Pastor Paul preached the last three Sundays on this time that Jesus is in Samaria. And something amazing happens there. Samaritans and Jews do not get along. They are ancient, ancient enemies of one another. They have nothing in common, ethnically, culturally, religiously. They are just polar opposites. But despite all of these differences, Jesus sits down at a well and he engages a Samaritan woman in conversation. And by the time that encounter is over, something amazing has happened. She has left her water jug and she has gone into town and she is walking through the streets proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And this amazing harvest immediately comes in response to Jesus' word. The disciples have run off to like go on a Jimmy John's run. They're going to get sandwiches. And by the time they come back, there's crowds of people coming out of the village to see Jesus. They're receiving his word and they're saying, we know that you are the savior of the world. They're responding not to his works, but to his word. So Jesus spends two days teaching them and many more are coming to faith in him. And now in verse 43, it's two days later, it's time for Jesus to plot his next move, right? What's he going to do? We think that Jesus is going to set up, he's going to like hang a shingle there. He's going to set up Jesus Christ, worldwide ministries of destiny of Samaria. You know what I mean? We expect him to keep plowing that ground where he's, he's having success. He's seeing fruit. He's seeing a harvest. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he departs and heads north, which is what he was originally doing when he left Judea, to head to Galilee. Galilee is the region north of Samaria where uh, the towns of Cana and Capernaum and Nazareth are located. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. That's where he grew up. Nazareth is where Jesus was Joseph's son. He was the carpenter. 
And it's interesting. Verse 44 begins with the word for. It begins with the word for. After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. This is interesting. Jesus chooses to leave an area of fruitful ministry to go to a place where he has no honor. This is hard for us to understand. It was probably hard for the disciples to understand as well. Not only that, we need to deal with another strange thing in verse 45. It says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, which is it? Is John contradicting himself there? Well, no, he's not. He's not. As we keep reading, it says, They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What John is saying is that they welcomed him as the miracle worker. They were excited that it's the hometown kid, and he's come back and he's learned a few parlor tricks, right? He's going to show off for us. He's going to show us all the cool things that he can do. And they're all, it's all well and good for them to receive Jesus as the, as the worker of signs and wonders and miracles. They're all on board for that. But Jesus didn't come just to work miracles. He came to be the Messiah. And so when his hometown people say, it's cool that you're doing miracles, that's all well and good, but Jesus, I coached your youth soccer team. I know you. I know who you are. I sat next to you in grade school, Jesus. I guess it would have been Hebrew school, but still. Jesus, I know who you are. It's fun. It's great to have you here. We'd love to have you as a celebrity. But Jesus didn't come to be a celebrity. So why does he do this? Why is Jesus making these strategic choices? Surely his disciples would have asked, Jesus, we have fruitful ministry here. Why are we going to go there? Well, remember, the disciples are only seeing the back of the tapestry at this point. We know that the reason that Jesus came was not to carve out a niche of of Samaritan followers. He didn't come to just uh, create a few disciples in Jerusalem and then move on to the next thing. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law of God, to live a life of perfect obedience, to preach the good news, and then to be rejected by his own people and to be murdered. This is what he came to do so that he could save sinners by his death. And this is what he's doing in this moment. And you have to, you have to take yourself outside of 2017 and, and, and put yourself back in the first century for what it was like for the disciples to see Jesus doing this. They didn't understand what he was doing. We're prisoners of the moment, but Jesus is concerned with eternity. What would it look like for the trials and, the, and the, the things that God is doing in our lives that we don't understand if we adopted that perspective? If we remembered that he's good, that he's working in ways that we often don't understand to bring about his good and gracious purposes. If I haven't convinced you yet, our second point will certainly do that. This is the context. Jesus is going to a place that is not honoring him. It's welcoming him, but it's not honoring him as God. He's going to have an encounter, a startling conversation with this official. He's in Cana, and this official approaches. The Greek word for official is basilikos. It just means a king's man, a royal court member. He's a nobleman of some kind. This is a, pretty, this is a guy who's a pretty big deal. And he's got a problem, and that's what's bringing him on the day's journey from Capernaum to Cana, and that is that his son is ill and is at the point of death. Somehow this official had heard that Jesus was in town, and he remembered that Jesus was the miracle worker from the wedding at Cana. 
Jesus is the one that was doing all of these signs and wonders down at the feast, and he hears that Jesus is in town. Jesus is nearby. He's at Cana. He's just a short jaunt away. His son is in a desperate situation. And there's a, it's, John gives us a very bare narration of this. It's, very, it's sort of very sparse. And I think in order for us to understand and to feel the weight of this, we need to sort of get ourselves into this situation. You've got to remember this, this official, he is powerful. He would have been wealthy. He would have been influential. He would have had authority. Servants, men under his command. But none of it means anything to him without his, without his son being okay. It would have been customary and more fitting for him to send a servant to go fetch Jesus. Remember, Jesus is nobody in this day and age. He's the son of a carpenter. He's a person of no account. And this, this man is a king's official, but he doesn't do that. He comes. He comes himself to plead with Jesus. He doesn't hold on to his position or his status because many of you know this feeling. Nothing matters if your child isn't okay. None of that stuff matters. I heard the story of a comedian named Anthony Griffith who moved to L.A. in 1990 to seek his fame and fortune as a comedian, and he tells the story of receiving two phone calls that changed his life. One was from the talent coordinator for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson saying, Johnny wants you to be on the show. Get your five minutes ready. Get your act together. You're going to be on TV. You're going to be on The Tonight Show. And the second call was from his two-year-old daughter's doctor calling to let him know that her cancer had returned. And he narrates the surreal experience of going through the course of that year as his career is just taking off. All of his professional dreams are coming true. All the while, his daughter's health is deteriorating. And eventually she died. And he said, in 1990, I had three appearances on the Johnny Carson show. And in those three appearances, I had 14 different applause breaks. He said, but nobody knew that I was mourning. Nobody there knew that I could not have cared less about The Tonight Show. I could not have cared less about the legendary Johnny Carson. No one knew that I would have given it all if I could have had just one more day to share a bag of french fries with my daughter. That's the kind of desperation this official was feeling. He doesn't care about his position, his wealth, his standing, or even who this Jesus is, if he's the real deal. He's just heard that this guy does miracles, he does wonders and signs, and so he takes the day-long journey from Capernaum to Cana to plead with this man of no account. Verse 47, he asked Jesus to come with him. That blunts the force of what it says in the original. It says that he pleaded. He went on begging with Jesus, come down to my house before my son dies. It's an incredible scene. It's profound. You see this man, this social better, kneeling before the blue-collar carpenter's son. And Jesus responds in verse 48. And we are quite simply not ready for this. We're not ready for Jesus to speak in this way. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. At first glance, that feels harsh. It feels cold. 
feels mean-spirited. But as we look deeper, we're going to see this is grace. It is grace to this man all the way down because here's the thing. Jesus sees the front of the tapestry, not the back. And that's the information that he's working with in this moment. He knows what this man needs to hear. He knows how to press this man at the place of his deep need in order to draw him, draw him past a mere desire for miracles and into a saving faith in him. Jesus is willing to deal with us in ways that feel harsh and hard to us for our everlasting joy. C.S. Lewis understood this. And surprised by joy, he narrates the story of his coming to faith in Christ, and it was a very difficult experience for Lewis. He, was, he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He says that he was brought into the kingdom kicking, struggling, resentful, eyes darting in every direction for a chance of escape. And then here's what he said about it. Here's what he said about what God was doing in the midst of all of that. He said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Jesus' compulsion to this man is his liberation. What feels like hardness is, is the soft whisper of grace. And Jesus is speaking not only to this man, he's speaking to all the crowds who have assembled around him. Jesus is in the midst of a crowd when this happens. When Jesus says, you see signs and wonders, he's, that's in the plural. He's saying, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And Jesus is employing one of my favorite parenting tactics, talking to one kid but kind of addressing them all at once. You know what I mean? Do we do that? My kids are in the service right now, they know. We got a lot of kids. You got a, you got a batch parent every once in a while. Jesus is sending a warning to the crowds that have gathered there. He's saying, these people, they're miracle appreciators. They're not Messiah seekers. And there's an eternal difference between those two things. These people would use Jesus as a means to some other end, and Jesus will have none of it. Jesus says, I'm not some sort of carnival sideshow. I'm not here to just impress you with the razzle-dazzle. I'm not a dispenser of signs and wonders. I'm the Savior of the world. I didn't come to impress you. I came to call sinners to repentance, to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm not the means to some other end. I am the end. It's a warning for the crowd. And it's also a test for the man. And it is love. It is love. Guys, we know this. Love doesn't have to feel like love in order to be love. Amen? Every parent who's ever had to discipline a child knows this. The child doesn't feel loved in that moment, do they? If you know how to do that, let me know that. Let me know how you, how you make that happen in your discipline. Guys, it's not loving to see a child walking into traffic and to grab them and tackle them to the ground. It's not unloving to wound your friend with a rebuke you see him about to shipwreck his life on the rocks of unbelief or adultery. Love doesn't have to feel like love to be love. Love is the rugged commitment to the good of the beloved, whatever it means, whatever it costs. 
The official responds. He pleads insistently, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus looks at him surely with eyes full of compassion and he says, Go, your son will live. Or some of your translations say, Go your way, your son lives. And just like that, it's done. There's no sign, just an instruction to go and believe. This is a long-distance miracle, which is kind of an odd thing even in the Scriptures. Jesus has incredible range on his jump shot. He has limitless power to heal. He has limitless power to perform miracles. That's the end of the conversation. The miracle's performed, the grace has been imparted, and faith has been awakened. Faith has been awakened through this trial. So for our third point, I want us to see a portrait of saving faith in the way that this official responds to Jesus. And there's at least four things, four elements of saving faith that we see in his response. First, a saving faith pleads mercy, not merits. Saving faith pleads mercy, not merits. This official, this is very interesting to us. It would have been completely understandable for this man of high rank and high position to say, listen here, carpenter. Boy's got royal blood in his veins. What are you doing? Get down here right now. You come to my house immediately. I demand it. But he doesn't do that. He responds with humility. He just pleads. It's amazing to me. As you read the Gospels, you see the faith that Jesus commends. It's always a humble faith. It's always a faith that completely divests itself of any deserving and just pleads the mercy of Jesus. I think the best illustration of this, other than the text we're looking at now, is in Matthew 15. Jesus encounters this Canaanite woman, and her, her uh, child is severely oppressed by a demon. She's calling out after Jesus. The disciples are trying to put her away. Jesus is busy. He doesn't have time for you. She continues to cry out, and he answers her. Jesus speaks to this woman, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's Canaanite. She's not a part of the covenant community. Jesus speaks to her in a way that sounds so harsh, but he's doing the same thing here that he's doing with this official. He's he's drawing out faith in her. We see this faith in the humility of her response. She says to Jesus, Jesus says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And listen to what she says. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. The kind of faith that Jesus commends is a, it's a humble faith. It's a faith that says, Jesus, I don't have anything to offer you. All I have is you. i got nowhere else to go. I have no place to turn. My only hope is in your kindness to me. I think it was Flannery O'Connor who first said, come to Jesus in the gospel. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. We sang it this morning. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. And until you can say, that's me, Jesus will not have anything to do with you. The gospel is good news 
for sinners if it's not too far beneath you. Have you renounced your merit? Have you renounced your worthiness of the mercy of God? Saving faith pleads mercy, not merits. Saving faith also takes Jesus at his word. It takes Jesus at his word. Verse 50, the second half says, As soon as Jesus says, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And we need to notice here, Jesus has not fully granted this man's request. The official wants Jesus to come with him down to his house. And Jesus says, I'm not coming to your house. It's only a partial granting. He gives him no sign and he does not go with him. And he doesn't need to. The point is that the official goes believing the word before he sees the result. Before he sees that Jesus has answered his prayers with his eyes, he believes with faith. He's trusting in, in this moment, in the Savior, not the sign. He's looking past the deliverance and trusting the deliverer. He's looking past the healing that he's seeking and he's trusting in the healer. Faith takes Jesus at his word. It hears, it trusts, and it obeys. That's what Hebrews 11.1 says. This is sort of like the... The, 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 the most important text on faith in the Bible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's being convinced that Jesus is faithful to do what he has said he will do. You know, this is, this is, this is really where the rubber meets the road for so many of us because we live, don't we, in the tension between verse 50 in verse 51, we live between hearing Jesus say the word to us and seeking to believe it and live in obedience to it and seeing the fulfillment of his word. That's the question of faith. Will we take Jesus at his word? Oftentimes, Jesus' word gets pitted against our own sort of inner narratives, right? Right? I know, that, I know that God says that he loves me. I know that Jesus says he'll never leave me nor forsake me, but I feel forsaken right now. I don't feel like Jesus could love me. Well, I just want to ask you, maybe you're asking some of those questions right now. Let me ask you this. Who's been more trustworthy? Jesus' word or yours? Which have you been more able to count on in your life? God's promises or your perspective? We only see the back of the tapestry. He sees the front. Will you take Jesus at his word, even if the word he gives you is not fully the word that you wanted? If you want to have a hope that lasts, if you want to have a confidence, if you want to live building your life on something that's steady and trustworthy, build your life on the word of God. In the midst of the craziness of the world that we live in today, the grass withers, the flower fades, but not the word of God. It endures forever. Faith takes Jesus at his word. Third, the saving faith sees the person of Jesus in the works of Jesus. 
It sees the person of Jesus in the works of Jesus. So the servant hears the word. He goes on his way. And as he's going down, his servants meet him on the way. It's about a day's journey uh, from Cana back to Capernaum. And he would have met with Jesus in the, in the early afternoon. So he wouldn't have had time to make a full journey back. So it's the next day and he's on his way. And his servants stop him and meet him. And they tell him that his son is recovering. And he asks the question, when exactly did that happen? And they say it was the seventh hour. That's 1 p.m. And in verse 53, it says, The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed. He does not chalk this up to coincidence. He hasn't been as well schooled in the cynicism that so often characterizes our lives. We so, well, I was convicted of this even this week as I, was, as I was studying this. We pray for things and then God gives it and we just move on. We're like the nine lepers. Jesus cleanses ten. Nine never come back and say thank you. Only one comes back. I'm so often like the other nine. I was thinking about this last night. There's something that we've been praying for and asking the Lord for for a really long time and we're, and we're starting to see evidence of that happening and I haven't taken the time to thank God. I haven't acknowledged his work in that situation. I'm not seeing the, the person of Jesus in the work that Jesus is doing. I'm like the guy who's late for a business meeting. You've heard the story. He's driving around the building looking for a parking spot. There's nowhere to park. And he says, Lord, if you'll just give me a place to park, I'll follow you forever. And he comes around the corner and there's a car pulling out. And he says, never mind, I got this. Here's a a profitable exercise. Where is God working in your life right now? What's God doing? Where is he inviting you to give thanks to him? Where is he calling you to see his activity and to see his person working in the midst of that activity and to rejoice in him? I uh, I read this week that someone said, I think this is really clever, faith is paranoia in reverse. So when you're paranoid, you organize your entire life around what makes you afraid. And everything that happens feeds into your fear that the worst case scenario is going to come true for you. Faith is paranoia in reverse. You organize your life around a deep-rooted assurance in who God is and confidence in Him. And everything that you see, all that happens to you, feeds that trust of God. Faith sees the person of Jesus in the work that Jesus does. And fourth, the saving faith overflows as a testimony to others. End of verse 53. He himself, the official, believed and all his household. Can we imagine just for a second what it was like for him to cross the threshold of his house when he finally arrived back home? Can you imagine the embrace that he shared with his wife? Can you imagine him scooping up his son in his arms? From desperation to celebration. This is the natural overflow of the heart that's been redeemed, of the heart that's seen the work of Jesus. What do you think the first thing he said to them was? Through tears, it must have been, I have to tell you about this man. I have to tell you about this Jesus and what he's done. I have to tell you about the words that he said to me. And I believed and he did it. When God saves us, he 
makes us a witness. It's part of the identity that he gives to us. And he calls us to engage our neighbors and our households. God's placed us with people around us so that our joy in him, the saving faith we've experienced, could overflow to other people. And let me just say this very briefly as, as an encouragement to dads. This is a man who led well in his home. He testified to the word of God to his family. We would do well to follow in his example, to teach our children and to lead our families to take Jesus at his word. You know, this is a, this is a text, this is a story about the miracle of physical healing, but it's actually not really. It's actually about a much deeper, much more profound, much greater miracle. It's the miracle of saving faith. It's a miracle that demonstrates how God is working in the midst of trial to bring about blessing eternally. For just a moment, God flips the tapestry around and gives us an example of how he's working in the midst of our trial. Because think about this. If this boy is never sick to the point of death, the father never goes to see Jesus. And maybe they never hear. Maybe they never hear this news. Charles Spurgeon says, It is well for the troubled if their tribulation bruises their heart to repentance. And repentance leads them to seek and find pardon. But the healing is miraculous, but the spiritual healing, the new life that God brings to this household, that's the far greater miracle. Do you know why? Because every miracle that Jesus did wasn't just about that miracle. It was to testify to his saving work that is eternal and lasting. Those healings, they're not eternal. Those earthly temporal healings. Do you know how we know that? Because where is that boy now? He's not walking around anymore. He died. Every healing that Jesus performs in the Bible, all of those people eventually died. I heard someone say once that there was a day when Lazarus, whom Jesus called forth from the tomb years later, there was a day when Lazarus said, "Uh uh-oh, I remember this. And he died again, but he, Lazarus, is alive eternally. This official is alive eternally. This little boy is alive eternally. Every member of his household is alive eternally. And it was through the instrument of this affliction, this trial, that God brought salvation to that house. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, was thrown into a Soviet concentration camp, and he wrote these words in reflecting on that experience. Bless you, prison. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. We're looking at the back of the tapestry right now. Some of you are suffering in profound ways today. Some of you find yourself in the midst of intense trial. God is at work. God is at work. You are not forsaken, even if you might feel like you're forsaken. Because here's here's the wonderful, glorious truth that we're seeing in the Gospel of John. The reason that Jesus left Judea, though there was fruitful ministry there, the reason that Jesus left Samaria, though there was fruitful ministry there, 
is so that he could go on with his mission, so that he could eventually be handed over to the authorities of that day, to be convicted of crimes that he did not commit, so that he could be forsaken by his people, and so that he could go to the cross and be forsaken by his God, so that you and I would never be forsaken. That was his mission. That's why he came. So brothers and sisters, my prayer for you today is that you would believe that Jesus is working mysteriously and miraculously in your trials to awaken and strengthen your faith. Would you pray with me?